the morning I got that text message from Dina saying he passed the night before, I cried my eyes out. I, cr- I ran to my mom and I was like, mom, Aunt, cause she's been following me. I'm like, mom, Andy died. And then in five minutes, I was like, oh my gosh, now I have to write an obituary. Like I had to turn off the tears and put my journalism hat on. And it was one of the most challenging things ever because it's, uh, I knew this, I knew this man, he invited me to his house. I met his kids. I met his dog and it was, it's not how the story was supposed to end. You know, and, and I felt awful. I felt completely awful. You know, this is, I met these people and, and then I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, your dad died, but please give me a quote. I mean, it's off. It's an awful balance and I don't wish it on anybody, but I, I have a job to do. Like I felt I was upset. I was upset myself and, but I had a job to do. Becoming a journalist wasn't always a foregone conclusion for me. After graduating college, I was prepared to embark on a wide range of possible career paths, which included everything from moving to L.A. to pursue my dream of becoming a filmmaker to almost accepting a copy editing gig at a North Jersey-based dental trade publication. (laughs) But then... Just as I was about to say yes to a lifetime of perfecting the grammar and syntax of dental digests everywhere, I was offered a part-time gig as a writer for my local weekly, The Central Record. And it was there and then that I fell in love with this work and knew that I wanted to do it forever. Not only was The Central Record the most fun I've ever had working in a newsroom, it also instilled in me a lifelong respect for the importance of local community journalism, which is just one of the many reasons why I'm so thrilled to have C.J. Fairfield on the podcast today. C.J. is a 2016 Rowan grad and currently full-time reporter for the Press of Atlantic City, where she really covers everything under the sun, local business, city government, human interest features, you name it. And in so doing, she serves that critical function of communicating important stories to those most immediately impacted by them, namely the people of Atlantic City and its surrounding towns. Most, uh, most recently, CJ won a first place award in the 2020 New Jersey Press Association's Better Newspaper Contest for a three-part series she wrote about the late brigantine mayor, Andy Simpson, who met a tragic end this past summer when his kidney transplant was canceled in the early days of COVID. I highly suggest you check out the links to these stories in the show notes. It was one of the most heartbreaking pieces uh, I've ever read, and the recognition CJ got for it was well-deserved. In our conversation, we talk at length about the challenges of reporting on something so sad and moving, as well as the important role this type of reporting plays in local journalism. But it's not all heavy, I promise. CJ is very funny and delightfully self-deprecating, so when I'm not trying to get her to take herself too seriously, she also shares some great anecdotes about her dog, uh, her cheeky use of social media, what it was like watching the implosion of Trump Plaza, and a, a fascinating story about a time she attended a real human autopsy for one of Professor Diane Garianti's classes. It was another 
excellent conversation, and I'm thrilled she was able to take the time. So, without any further ado, C.J. Fairfield. It's a, it's a losing battle. Yeah. But it's worth it. It's worth it, right? Yeah, I love him. He's my homeboy. They're fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm really uh, so excited that we got this chance to to connect. Um, yeah. I, you know, I've been I've been following <laughs> you on Twitter for a while and, oh, and just keep, keeping pace. <laughs> well, you know, I was I, one of the things that I was uh, going to remark on is how it seems like you you prime. It doesn't seem like Twitter is like a primary journalistic tool for you necessarily. That it's, um, you know, you use it in a very humorous way and sparingly and you don't try too hard um i I don't know i I don't know what that aesthetic no yeah well i have a professional twitter we had like a professional twitter it's like a pre ac press underscore cj and i was like well i sometimes want to tweet about housewives and team mom and my dog and so i'm gonna make up i'm gonna use my twitter they have all the followers on my cool twitter Uh my professional twitter just for stories so yeah, I actually made note um, the other night in anticipation of us talking. One of your tweets was that you were transcribing an interview and you said, um, I just got to the part where I met the so- <laughs> the my source's dog. Forgot about that part of the interview the and dog. it just made me smile. <laughs> uh, JoJo yeah. as they was. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. I, I like that. I, I like that tweet, um, not just because of the, the dog aspect of it, but also <laughs> because I can totally... I have so many moments like that where I can, I totally understand what that feeling is when you're transcribing an interview and you're reliving this moment Mm -hmm. and little things that you forgot about crop up and surprise you. Uh, Sometimes they're, they're just sort of fun and anecdotal. Sometimes they're significant. Sometimes you're like, oh my God, I forgot we, we talked about, you know, X and that's really interesting. So I, I totally got that. Right. Right. Cool. So why don't you just by way of introduction, um, introduce yourself and give us your, your job title and what, uh, what that entails. Okay. Um, should I say hello? I don't know. <laughs> Hi. So yeah, just give us your, yeah. Give us your full name. I, I, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to any of the previous, uh, episodes or not, but I really just fade these in conversationally. So people will okay. probably already have been listening to us for the last, you know, two or three minutes. Okay. Okay. Um, Hey, um, I'm CJ Fairfield. I'm a, I guess my official title is digital reporter at the Press Atlantic City, which means everything. Um, I do, you know, I write stories for print and digital, and there's a heavy emphasis on digital because, uh, you know, a lot of people get their news on their phones, on their computer, on their tablet, whatever, electronic device. And so along with writing stories, I also, we do have photographer, but I do take my own photos at times. And I also take video and edit video. I was actually editing a video today at work. So I do everything. You have to in this world. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That's very exciting because um, a big part of what I do at Rowan is teaching digital journalism one and, and two, I think it was probably still called online journalism when you were there. Um, and the idea being that we're trying to train students to be able to do a little bit of everything. And it sounds like that's kind of part of what, what your gig is. Yeah. You, you have to, you can't just be, it's funny. We have, 
reporters in the newsroom as young as 24, as old as, I, I honestly don't know, if in their 50s or 60s. And some are just not good with video and photo and because they came up and, and got into newspapers at a different time. And mm. I knew to make it in this business, I had to have video editing and photo you know, experience and how to, how to do all at once. I have literally been at stories where I'm taking photos, asking the questions and taking video and live tweeting at all at the same mm. time. I've done it all. You have to yeah. use two hands. Yeah. 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 It is. It's a lot. It's exciting. I think it's, it's really exciting to be able to create such multifaceted journalism, but I also recognize that does come with extra work. I mean, to, to, be doing all of those things at once, as opposed to old school journalism, where you're sitting there with a notepad and you go back and you write your story and that's it. Um, this is a much different landscape, you know, it is, it is. Was yeah. that part of the description when you, how long have you been there at Press of Atlanta? I have been there at um, almost the day, 18 months. Oh, hey, so, congratulations. Thanks. Was that part of the job description when you got it? Or I should say, how did you actually come upon this this position? Um, you know, I think it's funny because the, when I first got into the, uh, my journalism career, I moved down to Virginia, Southwest Virginia, and I was excited. I was on my own. I was out of my parents' house. And six months into it, I was like, this isn't for me. The, Southwest Virginia wasn't for me. Mm. Um, it's in the Blue Ridge. Everyone's a farmer. And I was mm. like, I miss the beach. Um, and so I actually and knew what were you doing down there. What was, I was a full-time reporter at a weekly newspaper. We published when I first started, it was three times a week and then went down to two times a week. It was a small weekly paper. Um, the office had no Wi-Fi, had like wood paneling. I was the only reporter. So I covered everything from courts to healthcare, to environment stuff, to school board meetings, everything. I did every, county government. Mm. I did everything. Um, and it's a different lifestyle down there. And so I had known somebody who knew the editor at the press of Atlantic city, got me an interview. Um, and, but I was told from the get go in the interview that there were no positions that were open, that they were just interviewing me. And I'm like, okay, this is great, but thanks for getting my hopes up for nothing. Um, and then I took a job in Maryland at a daily newspaper in Frederick, Maryland. And like two months into the gig, the editor from the press of Lang city emailed me and said, Hey, we actually have an opening now. Um, and I was, I wanted to get back to Jersey one, because I, lo I love New Jersey, born and raised Jersey girl. I love the beach. And my, I come from a very large Italian family and we're all here. Like 99% of us are in Atlanta County and even Egg Harbor Township is where I grew up. And so I wanted to come back, but I was like, I just started at this job and I just signed a lease on an apartment. And so I was like, I'll stay. And then I saw a year into my job there, I saw another posting for a job at the Press Atlantic City. And I, so I jumped on it. And so, mm. I, yeah, so I finally got it, but I didn't. Um, in terms of, you know, doing video and photo, it's just what I did. I did it in Virginia. I did it in Maryland. I did it in grad school. I did it at Rowan. So it's not anything new I did. I just taking what I've already done and what I've learned and putting it to work. Mm -hmm. w would you do it sort of of your own initiative or was it something that your editors would ask of you? Hmm. Um, I think... 
both. Um, it's funny now with the press, we have to have a video with every single story. Uh, it could, it doesn't have to be a new video. For example, I'm running a quick story about the short town passed their budget. I'm not going to do a video on them passing the budget, but it's a short town. So we have, we have a media meteorologist on staff and he does a lot of coastal videos about. And so I was like, let's take this coastal flooding video and put that in there because Mm. it's a short town Um, or something else we filmed in town a while ago. But every, every story we produce now has to have a video. So it's second nature. And I have the, I have an, a video editing app on my phone. Takes five minutes, five mm. minutes to, to upload it and everything. So it's really pretty easy. So you'll literally you'll you'll shoot it on your phone. You'll edit it on your phone, uh, and you're you're doing everything native to in in your phone. Yes, um, yeah. and then I do it a hard way. I, like I Dropbox it to myself, then open it on my desktop, to upload it to this web, this like kind of like software we have, like puts it in our system. But yeah, I shoot it on my phone, edit it, put slap the Press Lang City logo on it, boom, done. Five minutes, and th- they don't have to be long, compelling videos. I've taken thirty second videos of just you know people outside doing things. You know, I I recently went to the Trump Plaza in, implosion in Atlantic City. Uh. Took um, took a video of the Trump Plaza implosion and the reaction. Put the two videos together, slapped you know the Press Lang City logo on there, and actually sent it to my editor who was in in the newsroom, you know, and he uploaded everything. But it's it's super easy, so mm. it doesn't have to be a compelling, very highly edited video. Just scene of what's going on, done. Put it in. Yeah, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what what you believe the added journalistic value is of all of this extra media because one of the things that I try to get across to my students all the time is you know I don't want you to feel like you're doing this just because you can that I always want you to be thinking about you know how is this adding journalistic value and I'm curious to get your thoughts on that with the work that you find yourself doing in terms of I'm sorry I'm kind of confused by the question like in terms, in, in terms of, of the 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 multi like adding things like a video and and you know taking your own photos and potentially so, live tweeting yeah yeah what, it tells a story in different ways you know when I'm live tweeting people are perfect example the Trump Plaza implosion a lot of people showed up people on parking lots people on the boardwalk people on the beach we're live tweeting showing people what's happening in the moment if they can't be there you know, it tells, hey, you're not here, but this is what's going on. And with photo and video, it was, a picture says a thousand words. And mm-hmm. so, and who doesn't want to see, everyone wanted to see the Trump Plaza. Who doesn't want to see a building implode? Right. And so we literally, when I tell you we had 10 reporters and interns on in the field, we had video from, I was like on the street behind or in front of the Trump Plaza, whichever way you want to see it. One on the left side of the beach, one on the right side of the beach. We had drone footage. You know, we had photos of, we had a photographer in Caesars Tower, right, which is right next to the Trump Plaza. Mm-hmm. You know, different perspectives. And so I, you know, and what's, for an event like that, there was a lot of things going on a lot of different places. There was a viewing party from, um, I don't know how familiar you are with Atlantic City, but Bader Field, which is kind of far away. There was a viewing party at a bar with an outdoor space right there. People were on the beach. People were on the boardwalk. There was a <laughs> VIP uh, viewing for like city officials on the pier. I mean, so it gives you a bunch of 
instead of just saying, hey, this is what's going on around the Trump Plaza, it's, hey, look, these are the videos that, you know, this is a video of what people are doing. These are photos of what people, it tells a much broader story. And it sees, sometimes video does help. And audio, I've actually just put audio um, in stories before. So mm. Mm. that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, what's your actual, like, coverage area I mean, like what do you focus and, and do you have a particular beat is what what sort of drives the focus of the things you end up covering for the paper it's it's funny you know i had a very specific beat uh in maryland i covered business and breaking news and at the press of atlantic city it kind of i came on as a, a general assignment report like it may move into a beat and it kind of has been and then it kind of moved out um so i once I kind of did it was covering among everything local local government in a few different towns in Atlantic County. Um, that kind of so I, that kind of turned to a sub B, and then I also cover business. I cover business backwards, forwards, upside down, right side up during COVID, like restaurants, mm-hmm. theaters, gyms, small business. I I can't tell you how many stories I wrote under COVID nineteen how businesses are affected. I, hmm. we joke that I'm the resident dog reporter or the resident <laughs> animal reporter. Um, and old people, I love doing stories about old people, about if they're turning a hundred or they're a, a war vet. Um, I like the feel good stories. I like the featurey stories. Um, I don't like writing the, I don't mind writing hard hitting news. I've done it all, but I'd rather not cover courts. I'd rather not cover shootings. I want to cover the feel good Give me something that's going to make you feel good. The the, the nice featurey stories. Mm. So, but I can cover everything. I've covered a scandal in Atlantic City recently. I've covered. I can do everything, but I want to stick to. So yeah, local government. So I wrote a mark. Um, it was Margie, a city budget story today. You know, I'm doing longer form pieces. I do it all, but I do cover like local business, local government, and featurey kind of stuff. Mm. So. Speaking of, and, and I will eventually turn the clock back and, and get some of your kind of origin story, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I did, wa- I did want to focus on the piece or the series that you recently won first place for mm-hmm. in the uh, uh, New Jersey Press Association's annual Better Newspaper Contest. And I believe this was under Lifestyle and, uh, lifestyle and Entertainment Writing. Is that correct? I think so. I think, yes. Um, so, and it's interesting because before I have you explain the story, I want you to know that I read the first one mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, I, I, I hope I know where this is going. I clicked on the link to the second one and I literally exclaimed an expletive that I, I'm, I, I'm not going to repeat here. Mm-hmm. I was so, I was like, what the, yeah. oh, it, it floored me. And it, and I, I, I vocalized involuntarily. So I'm really interested in talking about this, but just kind of give listeners a a summary of what that series was about. That series will stay with me for the rest of my life. And it didn't start like that. Um, So Brigantine is a town I cover. And I had met Andy Simpson last fall just because I cover Brigantine. I sat down with him and I liked him from the bat and I loved him. And he was, just for clarification... He was the, the mayor of Brigantine. Right. Um, and he, you know, he was the kind of mayor that he always took my phone calls. 
every single time I called him, good story, bad story, always took my phone calls, always gave me a quote. Um, so I had, I was driving back from Brigantine last January. I was doing a story about how the city was collecting Christmas trees to replenish their beaches. They use them in dunes because they, it's a whole beach thing. They replenish beaches with Christmas trees. I'm driving down out of Brigantine and I see a billboard and it says, you know, please help our dad get a kidney. And I'm like, oh wow, people actually put a billboard billboard up. And then Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Andy Simpson. And so on the, I'm driving on the White Horse Pike and I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with the White Horse Pike into Atlantic City. There's no turnaround point. You have to basically go all the way into the next town up Seekin. So that's what I did. I, I was like, wait, did I? Because I passed it in a second. And so I went all the way into Ap- Sorry, my dog's licking me right now. I <laughs> went all the way into Seekin, turned all the way around, came all the way back into Atlantic City, had to turn around again, and then pulled over at the billboard and took a sign, took a photo. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I called him and I'm like, Andy, I just saw a sign that you need a kidney. Like, what is going? Because I had no idea about his health or anything. I'm like, what's going on? Like, can we do a story on this? And he says, yes, but my wife just died. Can we talk in like a few days? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, go deal with your wife dying. And I know anything about his wife. And so I ended up doing the interview. So I waited like three weeks. End up to the interview. End up his wife had, she was in a vegetative state. I know that. And so I, t- so when I did the interview with him, I thought it was Alzheimer's. I think it said in the story. I did say, it- yeah, I think was, I didn't want to miss misspoke, but it was yeah. Alzheimer's. Yeah. I knew she was, the kid told me she was basically a vegetable, um, which doesn't make it easier. But so here, so his kids put up the billboard. I, I met him and his kids. Um, they tell me the whole story. He needs a kidney. You know, they're, they think they have a match, but they don't want to say anything yet. It's a friend of theirs. I get a phone call like the week later saying they have found a perfect match. It actually is like, it's their neighbor. Her name is Dina. Um, and she never wanted to be a kidney donor, but she had gotten a really bad accident and want, knew she wanted to give back in some way. And so, you know, they did all the testing and I interviewed Andy and Dina on March 13th. They're, it was a Friday and it was right when COVID was starting to happen and everyone, everyone was freaking out about tool paper. Um, I remember that day specifically, I went to Andy's house, beautiful house in Brigantine on the water. Um, and the story it's, it's funny because the story was going to be a bigger story, obviously Andy's story, but a bigger story on kit on organ donation and what goes into it. And what's the recovery like for both the organ donor and the recipient? Like a whole bigger story on how mm. this goes down. And so the surgery was scheduled for March 17th. They were good to go. They were right. Everything was set in place. I That night, I was driving to a friend's house, and Andy texted me and said it got postponed because of COVID. And my heart broke for Andy because I'm like, here you are three, four days away from getting kidney and of course my set mm. as a reporter my second thought is well there goes my story like this story is supposed mm. to come out in two weeks and now it's on hold um so then i reach out to him again and i i actually reach out to him every few weeks other for other stories and just hey how are you doing and in may um i just read the story he was told he was supposed to get it and then they kept pushing it back and then he was supposed to get it in june or like early june 
and then his health took a turn for the worst. And when you get a kidney donation, or if you go on, if you're having kidney surgery or whatever, getting a, a kidney yeah, donation, you have to be in perfect health. I was told you can't even have a sniffle, like nothing. And so his health took a turn for the worse. That wasn't ideal. And then it just got worse and worse over the summer. And then he died. And that it was the hardest thing because I was working from home that day. And his and I had to spoke when I went to the hospital, maybe been like June, July, I stopped calling him because I'm like, I'm not important. He needs in the hospital. I kept in touch with his donor, Dina. And I'm like, how is she? I call her every few weeks. How are you? How are you? How was he doing? And she, everything was great. And then towards the end, she's like, it's not looking good. It's not looking. And it broke my heart. I mean, I'd known this guy for nine months and I, I just loved Andy up and down for the person he was. And so the, the morning I got that text message from Dina saying he passed the night before, I cried my eyes out. I, cr- I ran to my mom and I was like, mom, and, cause she's been following me. I'm like, mom, Andy died. And then in five minutes, I was like, oh my gosh, now I have to write an obituary. Like I had to turn off the tears and put my journalism hat on. And it was one of the most challenging things ever because it's, uh, I knew this, I knew this man, he invited me to his house. I met his kids. I met his dog and mm-hmm. it was, it's not how the story was supposed to end. Um, but it did have a happy ending yeah. with, you know, that the Lions Club named the dog after him. So it's not how it's supposed to end. And, but that's one story that will always stay with me because it wasn't supposed to. And, and I won an award for it. I, I couldn't believe it. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. I, I have, I have several questions about this, this story, uh, and, and you're reporting on it, but I, I'm curious, what, what do you think the NJPA recognized about this piece in such a way to, give you this award that's a really good question i haven't thought about that before (laughs) you know i think and this is literally just a guest it Mm -hmm. it was personable you know it was just i think wasn't the first line in the story the first story was andy simpson or andy found a kidney or andy simpson found a kidney because the story that i didn't include was andy needed a kidney it was here's this man that is just a mayor of a small shore town and it starts out as such like a feel good story. He found a donor. He was supposed to get, you know, this, 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 this kidney. And then everything took a turn for the worst. And I think it's just, it, it, it had, maybe it had compassion. I don't know. I, I feel like this is a better question for my editor because she made me submit it. I never really cared for awards. And, I, and she made me submit this. I'm like, Oh, I don't care. I don't want an award. I don't care. And when mm-hmm. I won it, I, I was floored. So I think, you know, it, it had human, it had human, it had human element to it that made you, f- what did you think? You read, I mean, I'm so into, I'm so in it that, right, right. I mean, and I cried cause I knew Andy and I cried and I went to his funeral and I cried. So maybe it had a human element it's, and it yeah. took a turn and I, I don't know, I don't know if I'm answering that question good enough. Yeah, no, 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 no. And that's not an easy question to to answer. Um, I, I could totally understand that. I, from my perspective, um, I think there is, there's the emotional impact. Like I said, I, I, I settled in to, to read some of your work and that series was the first on my list. And I was sitting in my, sitting in my office couch, 
just thinking, okay, this is going to be nice. And, and I read the first part of that story and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm settling into a, a three-part story that's going to have some really awesome redeeming quality. And I keep coming back to the startling feeling I had when I opened the second link mm. and that it did not go where I thought it was going to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that that, that emotional impact, it doesn't happen that often. Like stories and journalism obviously can be emotionally impactful in, in many, in many ways. There was something about the whiplash of that, that turn the turn between the first story and the second story that felt very unique. And then when you layer onto it, it's relation to this, you know, global experience that we've all been having. The fact mm -hmm. that this, this was also a COVID story yeah, um, was, was another big part of it. And if I may add kind of a third component, it got me thinking about or rethinking, because this isn't a new thought necessarily, but the ancillary consequences of COVID, the ancillary consequences of choices that various states, hospitals, organizations have all had to make. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I thought was, oh my God, if I were one of his children, I don't, processing my father's death would have been hard enough, but to know that he was just about to avoid that fate and mm -hmm. didn't, that is, that is just so haunting and of a, of a different magnitude or it, it's, 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 it's grief and tragedy in a very unique kind of box. And those were, if, if I had to answer my own question, I think those are, I think those are some of the components that probably went into assessing that story. Yeah, yeah. it was a hard one. I mean, I felt bad for the kids. They lost their mom last January and their dad and COVID and, and their oh, kids, his, kids are my age. They're like in their thirties. And so, you know, and I, yeah. I sent them a fruit basket. Like I was hysterical. Like I was just to, mm -hmm. to lose both parents in one year and then the pandemic on top of that. Right. And like I said, their dad was there. He was there. He was getting the kidney and then you're right. The COVID aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, when I, I, because I, I believe that you didn't actually mention his wife in the first piece and it was in the second piece that, uh, that, that was, was revealed that she had, that she had died in January of 2020. That that did make me pause. And I, I did actually, get get a bit choked up I, I was like oh my god this is just emotionally devastating and um I, I I'm curious how that how you navigated that like you said having to put on your journalism hat and to wade into that sort of territory to to have to interview his family and friends what um I guess what was your approach there how did you how did you go into that aspect of this? In terms of the obituary? Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting well, you re, so you you classify that second story as as an obituary? Is is yeah. that 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. it was kind it felt of like an extended like feature obituary too. Like it, it was. Feel, yeah. yeah, it was. Um, and it's funny because you know the, that wasn't the the first story in that series wasn't the first story I wrote. The first story I wrote was solely on the billboard that was put up. But it was a three part series, so me and my editor were like, hey, "Which one should we choose?" We chose the hurry up and wait one. Um, so the it's awful because writing the feature obituary you know the the code i put in there from dina that was just what she texted me said i'm glad that i spent the last days with him or whatever she said and i think i reached out to the city manager jim bennett and he said you know i apparently i guess the family didn't want anyone to talk to the press for, just yeah, give him a few days, which I I understand that completely. Who wants to talk to a press when your father dies? But at the same time, I have a job to do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I'm sorry, but this can't wait a couple days. It's so, I hate to say this, but it's like old news in a couple days. Like the mayor of a town dies. This is breaking news. Right. And so luckily, Vincera, who was the deputy mayor, then is now mayor, did call me and gave me a few quotes. Um, I don't think the family spoke with me. The family didn't speak with me that story. I put whatever Dina said in that text. um, And then what Vincera, the deputy mayor at the time said, and I wanted to talk to the family, but they said, and I, and I was kind of pleading with Dina through text, Hey, can they give me something? You know? And and I felt awful. I felt completely awful. You know, this, I met these people and, and then I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, your dad died, but please give me a quote. I mean, mm-hmm. it's off. It's an awful balance, and I don't wish it on anybody. But I, I have a job to do. Like I felt, I was upset. I was upset myself, and but I had a job to do, and so, and I was. I'm glad I, I think I did it well. Um, I and I, and then I sent them the fruit basket, of course, just to offer my condolences, and I went to their father's funeral and. It's funny. I, I met his two daughters, but I hadn't met his son. And I met his son at the funeral. And he was, I'm like, hi, I'm CJ. I'm with the press. I wrote about this. And he was like, yeah, I heard a lot about you. So no hard feelings, I guess. And I had to wait a couple of days. So mm-hmm. I guess I mm-hmm. didn't piss anyone off, I guess. <laughs> well, it's we journalism is a human enterprise Mm -hmm. it is it's writing about other people predominantly and that means there are going to be times where you encounter human tragedy human sadness and there's really nothing there's nothing to prepare you for that besides doing it i remember when i was i think gosh i'd maybe been four years out of college three, four years out of college. And I started doing a series about, uh, this was at the, the, the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Mm-hmm. And, um, I wanted to do a story, uh, one per month for new, uh, for South Jersey magazine, which I was writing for at the time. And I wanted to focus on a particular South Jersey vet and, you know, write a profile of that person and their experience. And the second month I was doing this, somebody reached out to me and she said, uh, my husband died in Iraq uh, like two months ago. I gave birth to our daughter like three months ago, and I would love to share his story. And I remember the night that I knew I had to drive out to her house, and it was snowing, and I kept – I was like praying that it was going to just be an awful blizzard so bad that I would have to cancel the interview because I did not 
want to do this. Right. And unfortunately, the snow wasn't bad enough to cancel. <laughs> and and then I had to go into this woman's home where her, she and her mom are sitting on the couch. And this was only a few months, a few months since she had found out that her husband had, had died. And she was just devastated. And there were long stretches of her just sobbing. And here I am like, you know, 24, 25 years old. I, I don't, I, I just didn't know how to respond in that moment. And I just had to sort of rely on, I don't know, a shared humanity and, and trying to walk the line between what questions I should ask and what's, what's appropriate, what's insensitive. And, and you can't, there's, there's no way you can learn how to do that without doing it. So right. yeah. Um, Anyhow, I think that, um, yeah, I, 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 can, I can totally see why uh, you got that award. It was it was sweet to hear you say that you were, you know, pleasantly surprised and you feel like, oh, thank you. Uh, like you've gotten a few, like, I think you had said to me in, in, uh, in your message that like you had either gotten like some nominations or some like runner up, you know, but never first, first place. Um, is that accurate? I feel like I get second place in a lot of things. <laughs> even the even the silly stuff when I was at rowing, it was uh, Catherine Quigley's News Two class, and she had a, the the spelling bee. It was like the you know every year she has a spelling bee in class, oh, right, and right. I got second second place. And I like I was on a cruise ship one time. There was like a contest, and I got second place. I just and I'm okay with second place. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be number one in everything. I'm not a perfectionist. But mm-hmm. I just my jaw dropped when I when I got first place for, the, for this award, literally dropped. And my editor came out mm-hmm. and I, I said some not safe for work words at work. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was big. I, I, I still I'm still not big at awards, but I I'm still like oh my gosh I'm like an award winning journalist now. Hair flip. <laughs> and <I> just <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Um, so yeah, some of the other pieces that I was looking at that, that you, um, that you saw as, as highlights or, or work that you were particularly uh, excited about or, or pleased with, um, the, the speakeasy piece, this, mm. that, that feature that you did about various speakeasies, not just in Atlantic city. Cause I know you touched on one that was in ocean city, yep. I think, mm-hmm. um, something completely different from what we were just talking about, uh, where, yeah, you took this deep dive into these historic speakeasies. How did that story come about? How, how did that get on your radar? Um, it was funny. I actually, that was like probably the, one of the coolest stories I've ever done. Um, Cause I love history. I'm my, I, my family grew up in Atlantic city. I did not, but I grew up in the Lang city area and I know a lot about Atlantic city history. I had to come across like a flyer from like the Atlantic city free Atlantic city free public library and last January was the hundred years since the Volstead Act, which is Prohibition. And Atlantic City was notoriously a wet town during Prohibition. And I was like, hmm, it'd be cool to look into this. You know, there have been so many stories told, books, movies, um, TV shows about Atlantic City during Prohibition. But let's kind of take a deep dive and hone in on some places. And so I, you know, talked to some historians just from my own knowledge you know, of 
of different places in the city that are still standing. And I didn't know about Ocean City, the, the Flanders uh, was had a speakeasy, which was the coolest thing ever because I got to go in the basement, which is called the Catacombs. And it was nice. so creepy. And the Flanders is haunted. And that's besides the fact. But And then the Coast Guard aspect, because the Coast Guard played a huge role in intercepting these rum runner boats. Um, I did a lot of work on that. And I got to tour you know, I got to go to this guy's house in Atlantic City that was a speakeasy that, that you know, Al Capone, or not Al Capone, or Nucky Johnson, it might have been Al Capone, I can't remember now, um, drank at, and the Irish pub, and how we got to go up this back stairway, and it was real tight, and I, I love history, I'm such a history geek, and Atlantic City is close to my heart, because this is where I'm, I'm from, my, my parents grew up there, and it's, so yeah, so just diving into that and I learned so much and especially the coast, I mean, the coast guard was so helpful and gave me so much information because you don't think about that aspect. You think, Oh, where was everyone drinking? It was like, no, who were the people intercepting those boats coming in off the ocean? Um, you know, Lucy, the elephant and Margate played a part, which I don't think I even touched on in that story, but, um, yeah, it just, I, I love history and, it was fun because I have such a connection to Atlantic city and I, and I love Atlantic city history. And so that was a fun, pl- that was a really fun piece to play around with. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> no, totally, totally. And it also struck me that, um, it seems like in a story like this, you, you sort of get to, um, stretch your legs a little bit more as, as a writer, uh, just the, the lead, if, if I may, mm-hmm. uh, read it. I I love this. There's a narrow hallway on the second floor, so tight that your shoulders brush the walls that leads to a stairway to nowhere in the former Elwood Hotel. Hotel guests staying in the rooms above would open a trap door, climb down the stairs, and access the bar through the hallway. But only when the feds raided the main tavern on the first floor. And it was just this really nice narrative uh, lead. And, um, I, I, I imagine maybe I shouldn't assume, um, but I imagine that that aspect of it too is fun to get to, to write with a little bit more flourish when you cover something like that. I love that lead. I love that lead. And that's literally what happened. She was like, now when you go in this doorway and she opened this door and we were literally in this it was January. So I had a big puffy coat on and I, we were scrunched in this hallway and my shoulders were brushing the walls. And then there's a stairway and she goes up it and it just, she hits her head. And I was like, and I, I remember going back to the office and I was like, how am I going to start this? And I'm like, I'm just literally going to write that. It was the coolest thing. We're in this tightly squeezed hallway to nowhere. And at the end of the hallway, there's a stairway to nowhere. And yeah, that, that, I think it was the best way to write it. I mean, just, that was the cool, it's just a hallway, but it was a really cool hallway. And that's how I decided to start it. I love that lead. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's great. That's great. And I I can feel that. I I felt like something about the energy of that lead, uh, expressed to me that you really enjoyed writing that lead. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it happens to be of a style that I love leaning into and, and, uh, if we we cast our minds back to to magazine article did, writing, yes. mm-hmm. you know, um, and I, I I do recall you leaning into that type of writing style really well. And and not every not every student not every journalist enjoys that type of writing. Some students really like the uh, the constraints of a more 
kind of straight news lead. But again, it feels like you you really enjoy that. That definitely came across. Um, so speaking of magazine article writing, I guess Mm -hmm. we can turn the clock back a little (laughs) bit and, um, tell me what it was that led you to want to study journalism in the first place. (laughs) You know, what's funny. I didn't always want to be a journalist or a reporter. I, I, it's funny. Like (laughs) When I graduated high school, I wanted to be a chiropractor. And I, the first time I went to a chiropractor was this past spring. Like, I have it. And then I wanted to be a wedding planner, <laughs> and I hate weddings. And so, I don't know. Yeah, I, I picked up on that on your Twitter feed, actually. I was like, <laughs> oh, she really doesn't like weddings. I hate them. Um, yeah, it, it came later, like in my mid-20s. You know, I was always really good at English in high school and, and I guess, middle school and growing up. And... I loved writing what not, I don't keep a diary or a journal or anything like that, but I love the act of writing. I, I loved taking notes in high school and college. Loved it. Um, and I just enjoy, I, I'm not awful at it. Let's, I, I, I always got good grades in English and I guess just, I guess just one day it clicked like, Oh, I would love to see my name on a byline or something. Um, and so I, yeah, it, it was, there wasn't a really cool, there's not a really cool story behind that. I was just good at English and hmm. I thought it'd be cool to have a byline. And so, and the more I, the more I got into it, you know, the more I learned when I, st- I started at community college the, and had great professors, all my professors are great, but I had my first journalism professor, Keith Forrest at Atlantic Cape Community College was amazing. He like taught me everything that I started off in journalism and I, I loved it. And I loved telling stories. Who doesn't love a good story, you know? Hmm. So, and, and asking good questions. And so, uh, yeah, that's basically, I'm sorry. I don't have a cooler story for you, but I just, (laughs) no, 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 no. I think that, that there are lots of people, myself included. I, I, I did not, I didn't grow up feeling like, you know, with a notepad in my hand and, and wanting to, to, you know, expose the truth. And I, mm-hmm. I wasn't this like dyed in the wool journalist. Yeah. Uh, I was much more a writer and had various aspirations as, as a writer and, and got into this profession that way. I, I loved English. I loved novels and, and reading and, and writing creatively. Um, and, you know, yeah, had a very similar trajectory. So I, I totally, totally get that. Okay. Um, and it's interesting, by the way, that you mentioned Atlantic Cape. I have a student, I have two students currently who are transfers from there. They speak equally highly of their, of that particular professor and, and that program. And they also have, they've brought such interesting insights into my class from stuff they learned, um, at Atlantic Cape. So it's, it's just interesting, some connective tissue there that yeah. uh, I'm, uh, I'm starting to see. But so when you, when you came to Rowan as a transfer, w- w- at that point you were committed to journalism? Yes. Oh yeah. Did you, well, let me say, let me ask this first. Any particular moments at Rowan, and this is, I am not looking for a rah rah Rowan moment here mm-hmm. just and and so if you don't have an answer to this please don't feel like you have to formulate one but okay. any particular moments learning moments at Rowan in 
going through some of your journalism courses where you felt something click or a a, a revelation that even now maybe you you hearken back to when you think about this profession, either from the reporting side, the writing side, the interpersonal side? The only thing that comes to mind at the top of my head is, well, two things. So when I was at Rowan, I took on the the uh, title, I guess you can call it a title, as the crime reporter for The Wit. Um, I basically just analyzed crime data, like the report, the crime report data from the Rowan police. Um, and there was one story, I think there was, um, there was like the 7-Eleven on campus, I think it was, or the convenience store. And someone was like stealing Rowan bucks, the, the money off, Row, is it Rowan bucks or Rowan cards? It's been a while now. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And I had to get a hold of Joe Cardona, who is like the kind of p- spokesman for Rowan. Um, that's not his probably official title, but he's the kind of the, the contact there. And I, so here I am, you know, little r- journalism reporter, student reporter, and I need to get a hold of Joe Cardone. I can't get a hold of him. And he, he finally calls me for this story I was writing for The Way. And he is in Puerto Rico. And he on vacation, I'm with his family and... And like I said, I don't think I'm anybody. I'm just a student at Rowan. And here he is, an employee, the PIO kind of for the university. And he's like, oh, I'm in Puerto Rico right now. I'm staying on the beach looking at the water. And I'm going to get off that phone call and texting my friend. And I'm like, I just had the guy from Rowan call me from his vacation kind of out of the country. You know, because Puerto Rico is kind of whatever. And I'm like, right, right. I can't believe he called little me as like I have – not that I have any clout or anything, but here I am just writing a story for the student newspaper. And he called me on his vacation. I can't believe it. Um, and then, you know, another story is actually from, they're kind of connected, both from Diane Garriantes. I had her for, I think it was News One, and then I had her for health reporting. Um, and health reporting, I did, we got to do a story, we got to profile a Rowan School of Osteopathic Medicine first-year medical student at their first human dissection. Um, it was supposed to do. It was originally supposed to be a phone interview um, with the student, a first-year medical student there. But Professor Garianti's pulled some strings, and we got to go to the human dissection. And wow. I don't do dead bodies, <laughs> so <laughs> I signed up to do this before knowing, and I'm just like. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't like funerals. I don't like dead. I don't like dead people. I don't, I love Halloween, but I don't like really dead people. So right, right. I had such anxiety over that experience and I got to go and it was the coolest thing I've ever done in my little short career as a reporter. I got to pro, I talked to the, the medical student multiple times for the story, got to sit there and watch him crack a man's a cadaver's ribs and i actually got to hold the human lung um which is pretty cool they're actually really big i don't know how they fit in our chest but they do um what does a human lung feel like i had gloves on um (laughs) even through the glove i mean like is it does it feel like 
I don't know. Is it is it heavy? Is it like it was light a little heavy? Porous? Like I remember feeling fat, and I was like, "Why can't people just cut fat out of us?" And fat is like a gelatin, sticky, stretchy, gross. I remember that. I was like, "Oh, that's why it's really hard to get rid of fat because it's just it's just a pain." But I remember the human lung. It took two hands to hold just one. Um. Mm. That's what I remember, and this—I just remember like this, the this, the cadaver being stiff. I remember like I, I poked his leg, and I was like, "Okay, that's a little." So you were like up close. I, mean, I you, was this at wasn't the like table. Were... I was at the table wow. with the cadaver, and there was the room of twenty-five cadavers um, laying on tables. And they during so there was two different groups. The group I went to, they were opening up the chest cavity. I feel so medical professional saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and exposing the lungs and the second group which i was not there for they took out the heart but they and I, they they peeled back now i'm now i'm messing up the names there's like two different like chest muscles and they pulled them back and they they look like roast beef and i could not eat roast roast beef for a long time after that <laughs> and, oh and i smelled like formaldehyde for all day until i showered right. Um, that was a cool experience, but so I wrote that story about, it was just literally a profile of a first year medical student performing its first human dissection. Um, I, th- I guess I got an A on the story. I don't remember. I had to, uh, because professor Garantes told me she was so impressed or I think, no, she had shared a few of her student stories with whoever she, she worked with at Rowan Som. Um, and they mm-hmm. liked my story so much. I was told that my story was used for recruitment purposes or on the website. I'm not exactly sure, but I was told it was used to kind of, Hey, look at this cool. If you want to be a student here, look at this cool thing you can do. You can, you're going to dissect or I think mm. I was told. Um, and then another time and, and, uh, Professor Gayanti's class. I I feel like this is all praise, but it really took me because I don't think I'm that yeah, cool. <laughs> um, I did a story on Atlantic City, and because at the time I was at Rowan, I guess it was 2014, uh, three casinos closed in like one summer, and which took a huge hit on because Atlantic City is a tourism destination. How it affected small business, um, and I talked to a couple of pizza places around there and stuff like that, and. She told me later, or she wrote, she wrote me a letter of recommendation uh, for grad school. And in that letter, she wrote, you know, Caesar wrote the story about Lang City and how local businesses are affected by the casinos closing. She, and she said she got, and I got a, per, I remember I got a perfect 100 on that, on that article. And she said she still, she was still using it as an example for like a perfect piece for her classes after me. And I was like, oh my gosh. Mm. <laughs> so... That's great. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. I love it when I um, get the opportunity to use previous students work and, and to let them know that I'm using it. And uh, you'll forgive me because I do use a lot of stuff from magazine writing in various units. uh, Like we're entering the profile unit right now, but I've scrubbed the bylines from them because I don't know, I think I felt uncomfortable with previous students not knowing I was sharing their work or attaching their name to their work. Mm -hmm. Um, I say all of that (laughs) 
to suggest that it's very likely that one of yours is part of my rotation of <laughs> shared examples uh, in that class. Um, did your um, did your career projections shift at all while you were at Rowan? Did any any of your any of your experience at Rowan inform what you thought you wanted to eventually do in journalism? No. I, everything I learned was like, you know, news writing and feature writing and magazine writing. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, even in Professor Quigley's class, we kind she talked a lot about, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money and you may need a second job and you may need a roommate and you're not going to, it's not a very lucrative career, career. And I'm like, nope, I'm still doing it. And cause I love, I don't know when or how I fell in love with it, but I love telling good stories and I love meeting interesting people and telling those stories. And so I never was like, mm, this isn't for me or maybe I'll do this. I don't want to do PR. I shouldn't really say that because watch like in 10 years, I'll be, I'll be in PR. <laughs> but I know I, this is what I was focused on and this is what I wanted to do. And like I said, I don't know when that happened, but I was like this, I'm going to write for a news organization. So mm. nope, never afraid. Yeah. And the, you, you touched on, cause I was going to ask you sort of what in addition to the writing aspect drew you into this particular field, because I know for me anyway, like uh, the, the writing only gets you so far um, because you're not a novelist as a journalist. Mm -hmm. There is this vast, uh, there are these vast other elements of experience that you need to love and enjoy to do this work well. And one of those is meeting other people, interesting people, mm -hmm. you know, unearthing other people's stories. And I'm getting the sense that that was, that played a part, that that was like a, a very adjacent passion that you started to, to feel. <laughs> no, what's funny. I'm not a people person. And I say this all the time. I, and I'm, I'm a dog person. I like dogs more than I like people. And I, and I'm not even friendly. I'm not the kind of person that will talk, that will just chat up the person behind me in line, which you can't do nowadays because you're six feet apart, but I'm not that kind of person, but I am on the clock. And I always tell people this, I'm like, I'm friendly on the clock. So, and I'm not on the clock right now, Nick. So this is me being friendly. Um, I was going to say, is this, is this token conversational for you? Is this, uh, this is, you're just putting it on? I'm, I'm very outgoing. And so, but yeah, I, and that's part of the job I love. You know, I tell people I love this, this job for two reasons. I'm sorry. My dog is literally, Kenley, you have to sit down. It is not, he's like trying to bite me and trying to play. It is bedtime right now. Um, it, there's two reasons why I love this job. The, and everyone says about every job, but it's true. The people I meet and the stories I get to tell and no two days are the same, um, which I love. But the, the different people I get talked to from – and, like, I've interviewed senators. I've interviewed, you know, pe people hold office and CEOs. But, like, the coolest people to talk to are the little kids, like the, the chatty ones or just – you know, it's and because they say the most off the cuff things and they're funny and it's it really is the stories that I can tell that, you know, give light to people. I'm not trying to change anyone's life here. 
I'm not that great of a person, but it is really giving voice to the voiceless. And, you know, some people think, you know, they'll never get their story out or they'll never, you know, feel important, but even a little perfect example. So a story, you know, of mine ran on the front page of the press blank say today. And I got the story from a Facebook post of a, a community Facebook page I'm part of for the press. Um, this little, basically there was this young boy, he's 11, um, was racially and verbally attacked outside of a store. This man got angry and was saying really awful things to him, very racist. Um, little boy was crying. You know, the mom had vented and posted about it on Facebook. It was like, I can't believe this. If you're this guy, how could you do this to a little boy? Some people in the community saw it and they started sending, you know, this boy gifts, cards. He got cookies. He got an edible arrangement. They sent him gift cards. They sent him money. And I interviewed him like here's, and it was a bigger story of, you know, hate speech. And then it also combined with, here's this young boy, you know, his mom just ran to the store for five minutes to pick up dinner. It was a small market, um, like a huge, like Acme or Walmart or anything. And here's a little boy, just a kid in the community. He plays soccer and plays, I think like Minecraft or something. And, you know, that made the impact and people saw that and, mm. you know, giving, vo- and I got, and I got to speak and he, he got to say, like, I never thought people, why, he's like, I thought, why were people sending me cards? You know, he obviously was upset about the incident, but it's, it's giving voices like that to people that think, Hey, I'm just a little kid. You know, he's, a you know, as, and to talk, you know, it's his story matters and to, and his mm-hmm. voice matters and he matters. And so, and it was great because I got three people reached out to me today, three readers and said, get me that boy's contact or whatever. I would like to send him something. And I coordinate with the mother and got them in touch. But I mean, stuff like that. These are the feel good stories I get to do and tell everyday stories. It's not about the politician. It's not, a, sometimes it is, but it's not about the big guys. It's, it's the everyday people that more so have the interesting stories. That's what I like. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I do. It's something that draws me a lot in in journalism. Much of my work is driven by that same ethos that I, and and that I've always loved as a consumer of, of media too. I love hearing, I love, um, I love hearing people's stories that really are completely divorced from, uh, any sort of high profile or powerful mm-hmm. position in society that that everyday people have these these remarkable yeah. stories to tell uh, I, that totally resonates with me. Mm-hmm. This is something that I, I I've been asking. I think of of everybody that I've had on the podcast. How has your experience as an actual journalist differed from what you thought it was going to be when you were studying journalism at Rowan? Oh, okay. So it has been hard. I never thought it was going to be hard ever. And no, that's not true. Okay. So I'm just going to come out and say it. It is very hard being a reporter in today's political climate. The, the barrage that I can't tell you how many times people have called us and saying, mostly we're too left, we're too liberal, we're too this. My favorite is when we get callers that say we're too right. 
And I'm like, we should get the call that says we're too left and the call that says we're too right. Put them on the phone together and just have them go at it. Because I'm, mm. people think we have an agenda. My own family has said it in front of my face. Oh, the media just writes what they want. You're right. I write stories that I like to write. Sometimes I write stories that I have to write, but I'm not writing my opinion. I'm not. And it's hard because everyone has, everyone thinks they know what our job is. And everyone thinks that we're CNN or Fox News. And I have to, there has been plenty of time, a lot of times that over the past year I had to put on my Facebook page and educate people. I'm not CNN or Fox News. I'm a local news reporter. I do not get paid enough to spin a story. I don't have an agenda. I'm just yeah. trying to write what people tell me, and that is it. And it, it listen, it takes a toll. Like I said, I've had family members say things, not to my face, but in front of me, about the media, quote unquote. Um, I actually almost had a breakdown. It was... About six weeks ago, I was at I was at work. It's like a five o'clock. It's five o'clock on a Friday. I'm I'm you know it's that's it. It's five o'clock on a Friday. You're ready to get yeah, out of there. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm writing up this last minute story. I actually stayed a little longer to finish the story. I had to run out to Lang City again and come back. And I take this, and we all answer the phone in the newsroom, which is always exciting. And because who knows what you're going to go on the other line, um, the other the end of that call. And mm-hmm. I got a caller who basically called just to complain and we have and we've gotten that we get calls just to complain sometimes they're they're honest like i'm just calling a complaint and i'm like hey thanks for the complaint hang up um but this guy just called and it's funny because he actually was complaining about an opinion an editorial and an opinion piece that i had not read and so i couldn't even comment like i'm in the middle of finishing up a story on deadline and he wants to call and complain about you know, we're it's calling us a liberal rag and we're this and we're that. And at that point, I, it, it just broke me to, I, that might be a little too strong to say, but I was done. And I'm like, I'm just, and that, I remember that specific day I was writing about boats, like <laughs> nothing political <laughs> boats. They were sinking these boats for an artificial reef. And I'm like, I'm not the political writer. I'm not writing about national news. I'm not writing about Trump or Biden or this or that. Today I'm writing, I write the feel good stories and today I'm writing about boats. And this guy wants to call and say, we're this, that, and the other thing. And we're awful. And I just lost not confidence a little bit. I just, it sucked. It was just, you know, it brings your morale down. And so I filed my store and I went to my, into my executive editor's office, who was amazing. He's a very, you just go in his, you can come to him for anything. And I was like, I need a pep talk. And I told him about this guy and it's actually a guy that calls all the time. And he was like, that guy's crazy. And I talk to him all the time and he's nuts and don't worry about him. And cause this guy called and basically said he wants to unsubscribe over an over an over an opinion piece and i'm just like oh my gosh like i'm just trying to write about boats and dogs and animal and old people like nice stories and that's the hardest thing is the hardest thing is that i said especially in this political climate is the media is the enemy well maybe the national media and maybe the left wing or right wing media but local journalism we're just trying to tell the, the stories of the local community i don't have an agenda i don't have 
I'm not trying to paint a picture of anything. I'm just trying to go out there, get the facts, talk to people that know the facts of whatever story and write it. And then, and then I'm done. And luckily I've been very fortunate enough that, cause I'm a very ethical reporter. It's been pounded into my head that, you know, all the stuff I've, I've done is, is fair and balanced. And I actually get, you know, complimented on some of the stuff I cover. So, but that's the hardest thing is I'm just trying to write fun stories about fun things and boats. And some people just want to call and complain and say, we're this and we're that. And I'm like, you don't know anything about my industry. You think you know everything, but you don't. I don't call your job and complain. So stop calling <laughs> my job. and it's, It takes a toll. Um, but you, you have to be reminded yeah. and, our, and our editors ha- help with this. We're doing a good job. We're doing ethical, you know, journalism and we have a job to do and our job is to inform the public, entertain the public. And we have to keep grounded in that way. So mm. Mm. that's, that's really, really interesting. And so I, I definitely want to use that as a, as a segue into talking about local journalism mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but, but before I, before we do, I'm curious if you have any thoughts, um, and I kind of want to put the caveat on this to say other than Trump, only because I, I sometimes feel as though Trump can is the the low hanging fruit uh, mm-hmm. of rationale for much more complex and nuanced situations, okay. um, of which I consider this to be one. Um, do you have any thoughts on what? has contributed to that feeling amongst people? I think. And don't let my Trump, no, no, <laughs> I, no. I don't want you to feel constrained. No, you're right. No, no, you're right. I, I honestly think he played a big role because he just uh, straight out says fake news. You know, I think social media played a part. I mean, social media is, is great and awful, for many reasons on both sides. And I think, you know, there's a lot of false information that is put out there on social media. And I know Facebook and Twitter have combated that and tried to, you know, rid of that, that fake narrative. But I think social media plays a role and it just, and even just people posting, well, I heard this and I heard this. Oh, well, then it's, oh, well, you heard it and you post it on Facebook, then it's fact, you know? And so a, a lot of, and they take, you know, there's there's so many different news outlets out there that are so biased, not the main news out. I mean, there can be like bluelivesmatter.com or black lives matter or anything like that's a really bad example, but Sure. Like for a perfect example, like my, my cousin is a police officer. My cousin's husband is a police officer. So he would post these news articles from these news sites that were like, this is not it, but like, for example, like lawenforcement.com. Well, of Mm -hmm. course they're going to have a bias and he's going to take what they're saying is fact. I'm like, but that's one side of the story. And, you know, I tell like I said, many times on Facebook, I'm like, stop watching Fox News. Stop watching CNN. Listen, right. watch, you know, li- subscribe to your local newspaper. Subscribe to, you know, 
unbiased news, the New York Post, or I'm sorry, no, not the New York Post, New York Times, <laughs> um, the Washington Post, like a, a balanced and yeah, because a lot of stuff can be convoluted and people just say, well, I heard this on Facebook and then it's like, oh, well, they heard it. So it must be true. And so I think, you know, other than the for- former President Trump, I think a lot of it just anything can be shared on social media. And when people are like, oh, I saw it on Facebook, so it must be true. So and that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, th- there's I think that's I, I think there's a lot to that. And to me, it, it has two sort of concurrent problems. When you when you talk about social media as a uh, as an impetus for the current problems we have in terms of people's trust in um, what's the word I'm looking for reputable ethical journalism um, that the distrust comes from both what you're talking about, the, the sort of decentralization of news that we don't have a shared common uh, place of journalistic authority mm-hmm. anymore. We don't, we're not all watching the same things. We are consuming media from so many disparate places that mm-hmm. any attempt at trying to centralize that practice, so many people meet with skepticism because they can get their information from so many disparate sources of which, as you rightly point out, you know, are often times ideologically driven, like purely ideologically driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you combine that with the the siloing of perspective and you have people that only consume ideologically right media or ideologically left media exclusively, they begin operating in two entirely different universes of information. And yeah, I, I, it's it's such a it's such a huge problem and it's such yeah. a, it's such a complicated knot to untie um but you are right to drive people to local journalism and here i am transition <laughs> alert uh <laughs> going to to make it there um because i do find that when i when i consume local journalism it feels very very uh divested from a lot of these these problems that there aren't the ideological frameworks that shape some of the biggest organizations and you point out fox and and cnn uh as examples of of that on on cable news msnbc i think that all of the all the major cable news networks have have leaned very heavily into ideological biases um because it's a financial model that works, mm-hmm. frankly, cynically. Um, but when you get to local news, it's it's a much different landscape. It feels different. It doesn't feel ideologically driven. And I'm curious if, to, to begin this conversation on, on local news, do you have discussions about this or, or even issues surrounding the, the things that we're talking about in terms of what the sort of ethos is of the press of Atlantic city in, in this regard. What do you mean? I'm sorry. I'm so a little confused. Sure. Like it, are there conversations, not even like institutionally or formally, 
just amongst coworkers and between editors where there there's is there conversation about how to maintain a a certain degree of objectivity and to not be sort of ideologically driven or driven by biases or does it just sort of happen naturally because you're all kind of following the same kind of ethical framework? I think both, you know, I think, you know, it's funny, a lot of our reporters, a couple of our reporters in the newsroom come from Rowan. And so, um, it's, Oh, that's cool. You were, we're, we're driven to, you know, to report ethically on stuff. And these are conversations that are had all the time on sensitive topics, on big topics. You know, we have to get both sides. We have to talk to this side or this. We have to talk to that side. Even if they don't want to talk to us, we have to try. Um, we don't want to give a certain a perfect example. Um, so I covered a Veterans Day ceremony uh, in the fall. And I went to the, there was a ceremony in Summers Point. And I, I wasn't even going to go that one, but there were actually, there's a bike path in Summers Point and they were renaming the bike path Purple Heart Way in honor of the Purple Heart recipients in the area. And didn't know who was showing up, but um, the county executive showed up and Senator Chris Brown showed up and they both said stuff that were um, perfect example. So Senator Brown kind of made an off comment about the transgender community. And that's what I'm talking about when I I record every interview. And so I had what he said on audio and we actually recorded uh, put import that audio into the story of what he said. And uh, County Executive Denny Levinson in Atlanta County kind of went off about, you know, the leftists and I forget the exact word terms he, he used, but he was kind of going, going off on Democrats. And then I was like, hmm, okay, this is a, a Veterans Day ceremony, not the time and place, but okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is in November, you know, days or so after the election. And, um, and so we end up publishing the story that there was a ceremony and deep in the story we put, oh, by the way, this was said. And, but we had to get both sides, you know? And so obviously there was a follow-up story to that because then some democratic um, officials came out and were saying this about it. And we had, and so we said, you know, we talked to the democratic side, we talked, and then we reached back out to the two men that said whatever they said. And we're like, Hey, what this, you're kind of getting some backlash. What do you say? So it's not like, Oh, they said this and this is, and that was it. It was, we said what was said. Um, and I had on recording and of course someone in the comments was like, but were you there CJ, CJ, did they actually say that? And I politely responded, well, yes. And the recording is in the story. Mm. Um, and so we have to get both sides and, and that easily could have been like, oh, and you know, these two officials went off about their own agendas. And I was like, and I didn't want to take away from the veterans. It was a Veterans Day ceremony. And so we made it mostly about the veterans. And I was like, oh, by the way, and this happened. And mm-hmm. we got both sides and we had to, you know, we didn't want to paint anyone in a bad light. That's not my job is to paint anyone in a bad light. And I don't want to be biased. I don't want to, I don't want to piss anyone off in life or in my job. And so <laughs> I have to, it's, it's important to get both sides. And we talked to other people like organizations that are, you know, for the LGBTQ community and stuff like that. Cause there was like a transgender comment made and 
you have to get the whole picture. You can't just mm-hmm. say, well, this, you know, so that's, that was one example of we had, and my editors helped me with that. Like, you got to do this. You got to reach out to this person. You got to reach out to that person. So always get the full picture and, and never just be one-sided because that's when it gets mm. a little biased. Right. And to also be on guard against being used as a tool by politicians or, or people in power who will cynically take, you know, almost any opportunity, something as benign as a Veterans Day celebration or, or event and try to use that to advance a political position or point, you know, and, and to, to not like just let that happen unchecked, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, I think is also really important. Yeah. Having spent your career thus far uh, entrenched in local news, how would you articulate the importance of of local news having having been in it you know you know from the ground yeah level in the trenches you know we're gonna recover you're, we're gonna cover the stuff that's going in in your backyard in your community you know perfect example and i and i sent you this the story was the horse and brigantine a lot of good stories come out of brigantine um <laughs> And I had just heard about this horse in passing, just how I found out about the billboard about Andy, Mayor Andy Simpson. Is yeah, what's the, Give the context just for listeners to, to know what that story was about. The, the horse and Brigantine. So I was, at a, I was at a council meeting one night, and they were talking about, I guess it was in February, January, February of last year, and they were talking about the St. Patrick's Day parade they have in every year, which eventually got canceled last year. But they were like, oh, Nova the horse is going to be the grand finale. And, and I'm like, there's a horse? Like, I don't know if you anything about Brigantine, but it's a shore town. You know, there's no farms in Brigantine. And I'm like, there's a horse here? And so I end up calling, and it, it was just in passing. And I end up calling the city manager the next day. I'm like, what is this horse? What? And he's like, yeah, this resident has a horse on this big lot they own. And go check it out. It's at this street in Ocean Boulevard or whatever it was. And I was like, all right. And so I drove down whatever street it was, saw the horse outside, knocked on their door. They weren't there. So that's a note. And I was like, you know, I'm reporting the press. Love talks about the horse. Give me a call. And they did. Um, and the horse kind of came an overnight celebrity because you don't see horses in shore towns. Um, apparently you can ride horses on the beach there, but no horses live in Brigantine. It is the Brigantine, is one of my favorite quotes from the late mayor of Simpson was, we're a sandbar. Like... It's, it's true. And <laughs> so, you know, that the horse of Brigantine, it, the horse became an overnight celebrity, which is what my, and I did include that in my story. Cause now every day you see horses hanging out in Brigantine and, um, and it's funny cause after that story ran, like my aunt, who's like probably like my biggest fan of my work. She was like, Oh yeah, I saw that. We were talking about it at my ceramics class. And you know, ABC's not going to mm-hmm. cover that. Like CNN or Fox is not going to cover that. And mm-hmm. then, you know, so the horse was popping and now, you know, city council, this is almost a year later, city council now was going to introduce an ordinance banning livestock in Brigantine because they're like, this isn't a play. The another cool quote from Andy Simpson was once you have a horse, you have the, you know, the you have chickens and pigs and goats and we're not that kind of town, you know? And so, and when I, the right. city council meeting that was going to introduce that ordinance to ban livestock, it was a zoom meeting because COVID and 
it was packed. So many people, so many residents logged into this meeting. No one really goes to city council meetings. Not a lot of people, you know, but there was, they were going to ban this horse and people were upset and everyone in Brigantine loved the horse. They wanted to stay. So they all showed this council meeting. One guy actually had a horse head on (laughs) in the zoom meeting and it was rubble horse heads. And it just shows that like, you know, look like this is something this, first of all, it's a fun story. There's a horse in a short town that lives near the beach. And it just shows that little stories, local stories like that, this is something this community cares about. As silly as it is, this is something everyone logged into into their Zoom, their computers to follow the city council meeting to, to make, to try to not have council, you know, pass an ordinance that will ban the horse. They love this horse so much. And so, like I said, it sounds silly, but this is what they care about. And they want to hear about their communities and what's going on in their backyard and, National stories are obviously great, but it's the stuff, you know, these are, and they got to, the people in the community got to know the woman who owned the horse and she was lucky. She's like, I never met so many of my neighbors before. And so stuff like that connects them. You know, they're all from Brigantine. They're all, you know, shore people. And then they all came together for this horse, which is, mm. is probably one of my favorite local stories I've written. Yeah, no, that was a lot of fun to read. <laughs> um, and, and I have to say, have you watched parks and recreation are you familiar with i watched like one episode but it's on my oh, it's on really? my it's on my my watch list i should say that okay okay all right well i, I won't spoil it there was something that reminded me very much of, uh, <laughs> of that show um but it also made me think about because local news it's one of those things that falls into the you don't know what you got till it's gone sort of category for me uh because i cut my teeth after graduation, writing for my local weekly right here in Medford, the Central Record, which still exists, but I mean, it's it's nothing what it was when mm. I was working there out of college, and I very much took it for granted. I took it for granted as a as a reporter. I took it for granted growing up here, um, and now that I am an adult with a family and a real investment in my hometown, I'm still here in Medford. I miss it so much because I am very concerned with the the minutia of what's taking place in my town. Everything from town council and school board meetings mm-hmm. to stories like the one you just relayed, those feel much more immediately important to me than so much national media. Um, and the other aspect of it is something that I encountered. I can't remember who... It was either a piece that I read or, or a podcast I was listening to where somebody was was positing that one of the contributing factors to our political polarization right now is the decline in local news. Because take take your horse story, for example. Those people were united around a horse. You know, they they mm-hmm. they had they they felt passionately for whatever reason about this horse. And who knows, they most likely were, all, were coming from a wide variety of political perspectives and, and ideologies, but it wasn't about that. It wasn't about these, these large, broad stroke categorizations of Republican or Democrat or left or right. It was about something that they shared in their very, very localized world. And when we no longer get that, when we no longer 
see stories like that, we don't, we cease to see each other. There's a certain common humanity that gets lost when that stuff isn't communicated. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? No, it does. I agree. Yeah. Right. And I, I hadn't, it wasn't until I had encountered whatever this was, this podcast or this piece that I, I hadn't really considered that before, that if we're no longer consuming local news and we're no longer concerned with, um, you know, stories about local soccer teams or the things going on in our town council, we, we put all of our energy into these much bigger issues and ideologies, most of which we, we don't we don't have much control over, you know, right. we don't, we, we don't have nearly as much control over the, you know, large scale politics as we do the small scale stuff that takes place on the local level. So yeah, uh, um, I, 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 it's, it's a real shame that local news has taken such a beating. Um, it, I'm curious what the feeling is at the paper, just in terms of the I, I don't want to say financial health or like, but like, does it feel like the press of Atlantic city still feels like a strong sort of media institution? Is there any sense of like anxiety because of what has happened to local news or, uh, you know, what, what's the general pulse in that regard? I can really only speak for myself. I mean, we're, you know, we cover, one of the biggest, like the biggest city, the most popular city in New Jersey, Atlantic City, and there's so much to cover in Atlantic City on itself. But I think you know, there's always a worry, and I've noticed. Listen, I started 18 months ago, and there have been like three rounds of layoffs. I mean, it's just it's scary, especially with COVID. You know, I was just talking to my editor about this yesterday. I was like, I was afraid that when COVID hit, I was going to lose my job. I'm a central worker, but every industry ever got hit. And luckily I was, we only had to take some furlough days, but I, I had, I'm always worried. Cause I'm like, you know, I kind of think the newspaper, the physical newspaper may die off. You know, a lot of old people read the, the newspaper. Um, and I know that cause I call the newsroom all the time. Um, I read, I read news on my phone. You know, it's easy. I can be in mm-hmm. bed scrolling on my phone. I do everything on my phone. I'm a millennial. Um, it, my editor actually did tell me that digital subscriptions are way up, which made me feel good. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. like I'm the, and I tell people all this time, the news is not dying. Mm-hmm. newspapers kind of are. Um, yeah. I don't know where they're going to be when I'm 60, but I'm, I'm not afraid of, I don't, I don't know what newsrooms are going to look like in 10, 20, 25 years. Um, there's always a little bit of fear. Cause I, I, I heard what they used to look like. I heard that we used to have so many more people on staff and, you know, all this stuff. And, but we, th- we have a job to do. You know, I said, news is not dying. News is not going to die. Um, and there's, we have a job to do. And, you know, I believe that, you know, we're, we're trained professionally to do this job. And 
not everyone can do it. I've re- learned recently, recently that, you know, a lot of people can't write and people tell me there's like, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you can, sh- I can't string two sentences together. And it's, it's an right. art. And I, I'm always worried. I don't know if, every, if everyone, the pulses, we're not all on, on pins and needles in the newsroom. We come in and we have a job to do. Um, I don't think we really right. think about it. I, we always talk about, and my coworker once was like, oh my gosh. And she's been there for like five, six years. And she was like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah, when, when I worked, when I started, there was like so many more people here and there's so much less. And I'm like, yeah. And that stinks because, you know, news, local newspapers are financially squeezed, but we're still afloat. And I think, and my editor said this, you know, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we had our button on the pulse and we, or a pull or a finger on the button, I should say. And we covered it up upside down, left and right. And people saw that and people trusted local journalism and invested in us. And I said, he said our digital, he told me the numbers, our digital subscription is like, I want to say more than like doubled. So there's like, and that, and that helps with the photos and videos we discussed. You got to find ways, more ways to engage the reader. And so I think we're doing that. And I think, you know, hitting the ground and doing, you know, keep doing what we're doing, but in a better, creative, faster way, it's, we got to keep evolving basically. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I, I want to touch on one, one thing that you'd said, cause I, I completely understand when you say like the news is not dying. Um, I tell my students at the start of every semester in various classes that for all of the more like highly publicized uh, economic woes that you hear from the industry or the, the challenges that they're facing, I also happen to think that it's the most exciting time to be a journalist because of the various, you know, media that you can use to tell stories, the fact that, uh, you know, you can, you don't, need to spend a whole bunch of money to produce really interesting multimedia aspects to, uh, to your stories. Um, and so on that point, I, I completely relate. And to the point of the newspaper itself dissipating, I used to be very, uh, like, I guess, not apathetic, maybe apathetic to, to that. I used to feel like, okay, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's a dinosaur. The actual paper product is, is going to get phased out. And there was a stretch of about a year, maybe a year plus before my, my son was born where we got the Sunday New York times delivered. Mm-hmm. And the, the experience of sitting down with a physical newspaper, it's not just the nostalgic aspect, uh, that makes it appealing. And that is part of it. It just feels kind of cool and old school, like putting on a vinyl record. Mm -hmm. There's also a much more, it's a much more peaceful experience because all you have is the page in front of you. You don't have a bunch of ads popping up all over the place. You don't have a bunch of hyperlinks just screaming for your attention you don't have the the bottomless scroll of of a news feed it's it's much more like 
I don't know, it's a much more present experience in a lot of respects. And it was something that I, it was a revelation for me that I thought, I, I want this. I want this. I want more of this because it feels very different than when I open my iPad and, you know, I go to the New York Times.com. It's a very different aesthetic experience and it affects the way, I don't know, the way I feel about consuming it. I don't know if, th- if that makes any sense. It does. And it's funny. Like I said, I don't know where it's going to go, but people can, and we do have an editor with a few editors that, that focus on the print product and what, what's going on the front page tomorrow? What's the centerpiece story? And, you know, it, people care when their kid is in the print printed newspaper for their soccer game, their basketball mm-hmm. game, whatever. And I think I even tweeted, you know, the press had put up a little write-up about all the awards that we had won. And my name was in the paper, like CJ Fairfield won for this journalism award. And my mom took a picture of the paper, that little clip, and sent right, it to me. Right. It was so cute. I'm like, Mom, my name's in the paper all the time for bylines. But the fact that it was like, hey, CJ won an award. She took a picture of that and sent it to me. As if I don't get the paper, I <laughs> walk into the newsroom again. But there is, like, people like to see their face, their kid's face, their grandkid's face, their name in the physical newspaper, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just not the same online, I feel like. It's when it's in the newspaper, people yeah. like to see that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And your mom, could, <laughs> that's just so sweet. I remember seeing, I saw that on Twitter. And I, <laughs> it's funny. Oh, it's so great. I came across, I was just recently cleaning out my basement, and I came across this box of old pieces that I had done, uh, you know, issues of newspapers and, and magazines. And I'm like, why did I save this? And I start taking them out, and I see that, there, they've been. There are things circled and notes written from either of my parents uh, back in the day when when I wrote these pieces. Like, oh, this was so great, Nick, and um, it's you know that's very endearing to hear, and, and it was very endearing <laughs> to see that. <clears throat> yeah, from your mom. So, um, I guess as we as we wrap things up here. Um, what do you see? What's, what does the future look like for you? What do you, uh, what do you see for yourself? So, you know, I would love, listen, if local journalism paid more, I would stay forever. Um, I love what I do. And I, I actually just had like a sit down with my editor yesterday. He kind of does like a check-in yearly. Hey, how are things going? You want to talk about things? I think we do better change, whatever. And I literally was like, nope, Everything's great. Like I'm, I'm the easiest employee he will have. And I'm just like, I, I love it here. There is not a day where I'm like, oh, I don't feel like going to work today. Even if I'm tired, I love that no two days are the same. And I love my editors and I love the people I work with and I love what I do. I, there's no money in local journalism. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. And I knew this going into it. Um, and that's just, that's just what it, it is, what it is. Um, yeah. So because I have to, you know, I'm not married. I'm just me and my dog and I have to support. And right now I, I moved back with my parents at 30. I'll be 33 in two weeks. Um, and because I want to financially support myself one day, um, mm-hmm. I would love to eventually move into a role where I'm like a spokesperson for a hospital or a college or a city or some kind of company 
Like I love mm. higher education. If I could be the spokesperson for Rowan University, I would love it. I want to come back to Rowan every single day. <laughs> and I, I transferred as a, as a transfer student. So I was only there for two years. And I'm like, I want to go back. And I actually drive by all the time. And I'm like, I just want to come back. Um, mm. That's There's more money in that. And I have, like I said, I'm just going to live this life, just me and my dogs. I have to fight. I have to feed myself. I do, you know, and I have to, like I said, if, if it were, if journalism paid double, I would stay local journalism, newspapers paid double, but that's not the case. And that's no secret. I talk about that all the time. I wish I could mm-hmm. stay, but I, I don't know if I'm ready to leave yet. It's, it's so much fun. It's so much mm. fun that I don't think I'm ready to, I like what I'm doing right now. And so I think I said one day I would love to be a spokesperson for somewhere, for the PIO, for something, a fun something, not for like, I shouldn't say this, but like a law enforcement agency. <laughs> Cause that just too, you know, like sea isle or like sure a hospital or something like that. So there's something fun and with more that, that comes with a bigger paycheck. Right. Right. <laughs> Have you given any thought to um, to doing some magazine freelance work? Has that has that been on your radar at all? It hasn't. Um, I'm not against it, but mm-hmm. it hasn't. I'm just very like I have one job and that's good enough for me. Sure. <laughs> I just sure. come home and hang out with my dog. Um, I'm not yeah. against it. Um, but I'm just yeah. I, only, I was I was only thinking just because it's it's something that I started doing because. Well, it was, first of all, it was a way to make some extra money, Mm -hmm. but I also happened to, I really loved magazine writing and I love that form, uh, as I I think is pretty evident in the way I I teach that class. Um, but it also can afford you the opportunity to like magazines still pay pretty, pretty well. I mean, they have the, 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 the scale hasn't adjusted nearly the way it should, uh, in terms of the way, you know, economic trends go, but I don't know, just something to think about. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, uh, here to give you career advice, but no, <laughs> just, uh, you can, you, you know. are my professor. You can give me career <laughs> advice. <laughs> well, um, CJ, this was such a great conversation. I, I hope really I did good enjoyed- enough. <laughs> You did. I, I will give you an A plus oh, good. in this, uh, in oh, this good. conversation. I hope, um, yeah, you're not as, you're not nervous anymore. I'm not. I'm just sitting here with the pup. He's, <laughs> he's calmed down now. Um, this was fun. Uh, like I said it, it was very conversational. I just don't think I'm that yeah. cool. It's so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> like it's, it's, I'm like me, a Look, podcast, what? So. You know, I, here's the thing. I think that Broadly speaking, anybody who is uh, robustly invested in a journalistic career is cool. I, I just think <laughs> that that is because I love this profession so much. I find it to be so important and interesting. Uh, and of course, that's my own bias. And, right, and, right. And misunderstood. You know, misunderstood is a, I feel like, a yeah. good for that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And one of my goals in doing this podcast, in addition to just catching up with students who I I haven't spoken to or some of whom I've never even met. I I interviewed a a student who graduated in 2005 uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, Mm. So somebody that I obviously never taught. Um, You know, part of it is catching up with students, former students, and getting to hear stories about 
what they've done after Rowan, which we just don't often get to hear. Uh, but to also give people who aren't even necessarily invested in the Rowan angle, but maybe the journalism angle to hear what it's like to be a journalist. You know, you're, we're the ones, journalists are the ones telling other people's stories. And it's, it's rare to get this type of insight, I th from my perspective anyway, on what it's like to actually be a journalist, barring, you know, the big names and barring the mm -hmm. celebrity journalists. We, we hear from them all the freaking time. Right, right. Um, you know, but on, on this really sort of granular level, it's been really interesting to get that, to get uh, those stories of the experience of being a journalist and hopefully making it a less misunderstood, uh, you know, profession and calling and um, it's been delightful to to hear about your experience, and I'm just so happy and pleased with the success that you've had. Oh, thanks. That's delightful. It's not a word I hear about myself very often. <laughs> well, I'm glad, that, I'm glad to hear that you you haven't lost your your self deprecating <laughs> edge. So I, I I do recall that from from your time <laughs> oh in my, my God. class. <laughs> um, hey, anytime that um, you know you have that urge to come back to Rowan, if even if it's just to uh, you know come into to my classroom or any of the other classrooms, um, we would love to to have you and and have you chat with some of our current students and to to tell these stories and. Uh, answer some of their questions about what you've been through. That would be great. Thanks. This was definitely when the pandemic's over, when no normalcy comes back. I get my vaccine in two weeks. So oh, maybe, hey, all right. Yeah. So maybe when the pandemic, maybe next year or whenever this pandemic is, if it's ever going to be over, I would love to, yeah. to come back and see everyone hang out. Pretend I'm a student. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Without the student loan debt. So. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for taking the time to think I'm cool and chat with, ask me a bunch of questions. It's weird being on the other end of an interview. Yeah.